So I'd invite you to open your Bible this morning to Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 28 through 44. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to use one uh, provided for you there, if you look in the back of the pew right in front of you, um, you'll find the shorter dark brown books there or the Bibles. You'll find this on page 743 or 782, depending on which printing of that you have. It's Luke chapter 19, 28 through 44. We're making a brief departure from our study on the book of Acts for these next two Sundays of Holy Week. Of course, it is also spring break week, and uh, that's holy in, a, in an entirely different way for families to have school-age kids. In fact, we noticed that uh, some of our own are probably gone away this week on spring break somewhere. I saw um, lots of Facebook activity that said people were heading south to Florida, and uh, as if North Carolina wasn't quite warm enough for them, they had to go farther south. We got a lot of people traveling and that sort of thing, but it is Holy Week, and on the Sunday prior to his resurrection, Jesus entered Jerusalem as the Messiah, as a king. But he was a different sort of king. And the power he wielded and the peace that he delivered were power and peace of a different kind. And it's, it's of interest to us because, you know, there's a sense in which the desire for peace and the desire for the, the power to actually pursue that and try to attain that in our own lives. Those are almost universal human experiences, right? Or human needs, human desires. In other words, when things are in a state of unrest, we want to restore a state of rest, right? Sort of like in music, when, when, when we hear dissonance, we always want that dissonance to resolve to something that sounds a little bit more harmonious. It's interesting, in fact, that even in in Doug's update on, on what's going on in uh, the Congo, there's a reminder um, that in our fallen world, we are always either in a state of unrest or heading back there, right? That somehow humans, we, we find ourselves in a place of discord, of unrest, uh, at war in order to uh, retain a, a, some little respite, some little short season of peace before war rises up in us again. It's sort of symbolic and metaphorical in lots of ways, but actually literal um, there in Africa. But again, in, in our experience, the same is true, that as we... Um, as we go through life, we always want to find peace. And we want the power to actually pursue it. We want some measure of self-reliance, of self-determination to be able um, to get ourselves out of that place of unrest and into a place of peace. And Jesus came as a king of power and a king of peace. That's the title of my message today. And again, it's drawn from Luke 28 through 44. So let's look there now. And I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Luke 
Beginning in verse 28, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice and all, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you as always for the privilege of gathering together, entering your presence and worshiping you. Thank you for the invitation to do that and for your willingness to speak to us. Lord, we thank you that the Bible is your word spoken to mankind. We receive it as inspired every single mark of it. And we believe, Lord, that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut to the division of joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so, Lord, we know that we have things in our heart that need to hear from you. You know every need represented in this room today and what needs to be spoken to those needs. Lord, how we need to be challenged, how we need to be encouraged, how we need to be convicted so we bring all that to you and ask, as we always do, that you would speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This triumphal entry, as it's called, into Jerusalem is the beginning of the end of Jesus' final days of his earthly life. He entered 
uh, the city on this Sunday, which we call Palm Sunday, um, because although it's actually not uh, recorded as part of Luke's telling of this account here, that when these crowds praised him and received him into Jerusalem, uh, not only did they uh, put their, some of them put, throw their cloaks on the ground, but they also put palm branches and waved palm branches. That was part of this celebration and praise of the reception of the Messiah. But he entered the city on this Sunday. He would be dead on a cross by mid-afternoon on Friday. He'd be alive again, of course, on the following Sunday, gone from the tomb. Um, and of course, that is the fact. Uh, that is not only our, the, the, the reason for our celebration of Easter, but it really is the central doctrine of the Christian faith, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of that happened in this week that we're uh, kicking off this Sunday. As I mentioned uh, earlier, we, we call this Holy Week, and uh, we are most familiar if because our worship um, sort of revolves around Sunday gatherings, most of us are most familiar with Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, and, and a little less familiar with what happens in between. Uh, we do, as uh, Matt pointed out earlier, we do have a Monday, Thursday service uh, this Thursday we would invite you to, that is the night that Jesus uh, washed the feet of his disciples, instituted the Lord's Supper communion or whatever, they, they, they ate the, the last supper together. It's the night when he was betrayed, when he was tried overnight uh, and then sent to the cross the next morning. That was Thursday. Wednesday, for those who are qualified as teenagers, 55 and older, we'll have our teenagers uh, gathering and, and uh, we'll talk some about the days that um, almost get missed altogether. You know what sort of what happened on Holy Week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, that sort of thing. Um, but th that'll be part of our celebration this week. If you want to be a part of any of those, but the significance of these days can hardly be overstated. Uh, in fact, there's a book about Holy Week titled "The Final Days of Jesus." It's by Andreas Kostenberger and Justin Taylor, if you're interested. But the subtitle of the book is this, The Most Important Week of the Most Important Person Who Ever Lived. You ever thought about it in those terms? This holy week, the final days of Jesus, is the most important week of the most important person who ever lived. And to underscore that point, or maybe even substantiate that it, deserves that ascription, that, that it is indeed that important. We might want to note the fact that in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are all, there's a record uh, of these events this last week in all of them, although because they have a different purpose and different audience and that kind of thing, we get different details recorded in, in different ones. In fact, it's really helpful to read um, all four of them if you kind of want to put all the pieces together. But here's what's interesting to note, that in, in the four Gospels, one-third, approximately one-third of the content of the Gospels is devoted to this one week. Think about that for a second. Because Jesus had a, a, a ministry 
three years long. And when the eyewitnesses went to tell the story about that, his last week made up a third of what they, they told overall. It's actually about 45% of John's gospel, uh, about 25% of Luke's. It is the most important week of the most important person who ever lived. It came, as I said, at the end of a three-year ministry, most of which had taken place in the region of Galilee. And for us to appreciate the significance even of this passage in front of us, not only the whole week, uh, a little bit more background might be helpful, most notably, um, that this particular week was the Passover celebration. And as we learned in, uh, as we began studying the book of Acts, where things really sort of blow up around the Feast of Pentecost, Passover is one of three pilgrimage feasts in the Jewish faith. It's when all Jewish men were supposed to travel to Jerusalem. And one New Testament scholar notes that in, in, in this city, Jerusalem, where it had an estimated population of 40,000 people, on Passover week, that could swell to six times that size. So think about a picture like New York City, Times Square on New Year's Eve. Right? You know, there's a lot of people always in New York. But on that night, <laughs> that particular occasion, they're just mobs many times over what it normally is. That's Jerusalem. It's not, not in terms of the numbers of people. But as far as the magnitude of the increase of the crowd, it's that sort of increase on Passover. And because so many Jews were assembled together, and because of the nationalist sentiments that could arise at a gathering like that, at a national feast, you get sort of nationalism can get sort of stirred up. And for those reasons, Roman authorities were more watchful of the crowd. They want to keep a lid on things. And the Jewish leaders also want things to stay under control because they want to stay in favor with the Roman authorities. They are quite concerned not to see any sort of messianic fervor stirred up among the people. So it's a pressure cooker situation that Jesus was walking into and he's getting ready to turn up the heat on the pressure cooker. Many of the people in Jerusalem were ready to receive the Messiah and he didn't disappoint. He entered as a king of power and a king of peace. And so let's look at those two facts here together. First, that he was a king of power. And one of the ways that we get a glimpse of that here in this passage is first that he entered conspicuously. He was not subtle. He was not secretive. And he was not afraid. He knew about plots to kill him. John 11, uh, 53, and 30, uh, 53 and 54 After the resurrection of Lazarus, it says that the Jewish leaders began to make plots to kill Jesus. And it says, from that day day on, they made plots to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. He knows about those plots, and he's avoiding them. 
out there in the outskirts, not because he's afraid, but because, as he says in Luke 13, 33, it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So he, he knows what's going on. He knows what's coming. He knows it's supposed to happen in Jerusalem at the appointed time. He knows he's going to die. And in fact, in, uh, in Luke, just prior to this triumphal entry, back in, uh, at the end of chapter 18 in verses 31 through 33, Jesus told his disciples this explicitly for the third time. It says there in verse 31, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. He knows exactly what's going on. He even tells his disciples about it. But again, at the appointed time, he did not sneak into town. He entered conspicuously as a king of power. He, he also entered majestically. Verses 29 through 34 there that we read said he, he sent his disciples for a colt. He told them exactly where they'd find it and, and what to do when they, when they found it. Uh, they brought the colt back, put their cloaks on, and, uh, and Jesus sat on them clo their cloaks. And that's how he entered Jerusalem. Now, Luke doesn't specify what kind of colt that word could, could apply to either the colt of a horse or a colt of a donkey. We, we get in Matthew and John's gospel uh, a real explicit reference to tell us it was the colt of a donkey. And the significance of that, of course, is that it was a fulfillment of a messianic prophecy out of Zechariah 9.9, which says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah says the Messiah will enter on the colt of a donkey, and that's exactly what Jesus instructs his disciples to make arrangements for him to do. Of course, this also mirrors how Solomon entered the city when he became king, although it says it was a mule in his case. But the significance of that, the imagery of that is not lost on the people who are, are watching this happen. This is how it's supposed to happen. The multitudes praise him. Jesus says in verse 40 there, if they didn't praise him, the stones would cry out. He intentionally projects this kingly imagery and receives the praise as king. And, and again, goes as far as to say, if, if if they didn't praise him, creation would praise him. And there's a certain audacity about this, isn't there? I mean, if you're, if you're tracking along here, because not only is Jesus not secretive and he's not afraid, he's audacious about this. He, he knows the Jewish leaders are plotting against him. Uh, John's gospel would go on to say, other people are wondering, is Jesus even going to show up for Passover this year? Because all this is going on. Jesus wakes up that morning and says, okay, boys, go get me a donkey. <laughs> you know, what kind of self-confidence do you have there? I'm going to ride in on a donkey. 
And he enters this, this highly flammable environment. And, and we know something about human interaction, sort of social dynamics, where, where there's a situation so inflamed, it's like you don't want to make any sparks, right? Because you don't want to set anything off. Sort of like being at the gas pump where there's those little signs that say, don't light a match here, you might blow up, you know? And, and it's as if, I mean, Jesus knows exactly that's the situation he's entering. And he comes riding into town on a donkey with like sparklers, you know, going off. Because he's, he's just going to blow the whole thing up. That's how Jesus is going into town. If there had been a horn on that donkey, Jesus would have been blowing the horn. You know, the lights would have been going off, sirens going off. And that sort of, that's the sort of entry he's making. He is not bashful. He announced his arrival saying, here I am, I am king, and I came to finish what I started. Make way. He's a king of power. But of course, it's a different kind of power. And nobody really sees this at this point. The multitudes are expecting uh, what the Jewish leaders are trying to prevent, and that is a Messiah who will exert military uh, and political power. It's not unlike, again, a situation like Doug mentioned in the Congo or any other place on the planet where when there is unrest, what you want is somebody to come by force restore peace, right? In a military and political conquering kind of way. That's what they're looking for in a Messiah. They're, they're expecting someone who will throw off the foreign oppressors, restore the national glory that they once knew. And it would become clear later, Jesus was taking aim at spiritual powers of darkness. You know, Roman and Jewish leaders and, and, and folks like them, they're just like pawns on a chessboard in, in the universe that Jesus knows is really governing over things. He's taking his aim at spiritual powers of darkness. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23 says, the power that Jesus exerted is the power by which God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and all authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He's not interested in, in, in the kind of power that Romans have or that the chief priests and uh, elders and that sort of thing have. That is, that's breadcrumbs from the table of God. I mean, Jesus, Jesus is operating in power and securing a power so much higher than that. It's a spiritual power, but it was on display here, of course. Jesus was not captured and killed against his will. Uh, his plan was not foiled. Events would unfold exactly the way he planned. We read in, in Acts chapter 2, as we um, opened up our study there, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It happened exactly how and when 
He planned for it to happen. And by that plan, he would go to the cross. He would pay for the sins of all who would believe in him. He would, he would be laid in a tomb and on the third day, he would rise again, conquering sin and death and destroying the domain of darkness. That's what he's up to as a king of power. But he's also a king of peace. And we see glimpses of that here uh, in at least three ways. First of all, the symbolism of the donkey. Because while Jesus did display messianic power by his entry, a conquering king, you would expect to ride in on a horse, right? Maybe a white one as a real display of of power. A donkey would be ridden ordinarily by a man of peace, like a merchant or a priest. Somebody who came in peace would ride on a donkey. But that's exactly how Zechariah presents the Messiah, as a man of peace. It, and it's almost as if the, cro- the crowd just missed this fact. Like they know to expect a Messiah. They know to expect him to ride in on a colt. So that they're waving the branches and shouting you know, praises and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and almost missing the symbolism here uh, of peace. And ironically, it is the crowd that gives us another hint that he is a king of peace. Look in verses 37 and 38. It says there, uh, that as he was drawn near, already on the way down the mount, uh, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, "Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, and glory in the highest." And he will secure peace in heaven and on earth, all the way around, but not, again, in the way that they expect. The multitude expected uh, for him to achieve peace by winning a victory over the Romans. The Jewish leaders expect to achieve peace by maintaining favor with the Romans. Of course, he's not interested in either one of those. What is interesting to note uh, is that in this declaration that the crowd makes, uh, it has a ring to it from the, uh, the angelic announcement at the birth of Jesus. I don't know if that sounds at all familiar to you when they say, uh, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so at the birth of Jesus, we have a heavenly multitude saying peace on earth, and at the and approaching the death of Jesus, you've got an earthly multitude declaring peace on heaven, peace in heaven. Again, he's going to take care of both. But then he goes on, his, his, his final, his third hint about the nature of his peace comes from his lament there in verses 41 through 44. Let's look there again together. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come 
The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone uh, upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's forecasting, of course, the destruction of Jerusalem in, the, in A.D. 70, about 40 years after the events we're reading about here today. It says, would that you have known the things that make for peace. Because they're all seeking peace from things in this world. Again, the, uh, the crowd hoping he'll overcome the Romans, the, the Jewish leaders hoping they can maintain favor with the Romans. And the, and the irony is, 1 John 1.15 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. James 4.4 4 goes on to say, Friendship with the world is enmity to God, or enmity with God, rather. So, so catch this irony, that for the Jewish leaders, uh, in, in, in verse 43, Jesus said that the Romans, with whom they are trying so hard to maintain favor, are actually their enemies. Notice that in verse 43. When your enemies set a barricade around you, that's the Romans. And so, uh, in an effort to maintain friendship with their enemies, they make an enemy of their friend. That is God, the Messiah. In, in, In an effort to maintain friendship with their enemies, they make an enemy of their friend. And guess what? So, so, so do you and so do I. When we make friendship with the world, and I don't mean friendships with people who are unbelievers, and I don't mean being loving and kind and gracious and so forth, but misplacing our affection and directing all of our affections at things of the world rather than the Lord himself. In order to maintain friendship with our enemies, we make an enemy of our friend. Wherever you seek peace outside of Christ, you will not find it. Now, if you've been around church uh, and grown up in the, in the Christian community, that, that sort of thing almost begins to sound cliche. But it never ceases to be true. <laughs> that wherever you seek peace outside of Christ, you'll not find it. You're just taking a ride on a carousel going around in a circle. You know, that horse never will deliver you to where it promises to take you. It's only going to go around in a circle. You think the hardships of your life can be remedied by cushioning it with all the comforts that money can buy? That's how you're going to find peace in your life, that sort of unrest. You're going you're gonna to settle that by just cushioning it with things that you can, you can buy. And you buy one thing after another and find it's, it's never satisfactory because you're just riding the carousel around in a circle. So many people would 
would have the testimony that when that doesn't work, then they try to numb the pain with alcohol or drugs to the point that the thing you look most forward to is just getting home in the evening to, so you can open up the bottle. And, and just sort of numb uh, the pain of life for, for those hours that remain until you, you drift off asleep. And that's life around in the circle. You'll come back to it tomorrow night. And then that wreaks havoc and destruction on relationships and all kinds of other things. And then you think the strain on your, uh, on your relationship, your marriage or whatever, is going to be resolved by just getting out of that relationship. Of course, when that doesn't work, then you try to find it in a new relationship. And on and on the sequence goes. And, and you know and I know. By the way, I mean, I might not have hit the thing that's on your list right now, but we all know this story. We all know this story of something that looks like it's going to be satisfying, of look, looking like it's going to give us some of that peace we're seeking and finding out it never does. That horse doesn't lead anywhere. It just takes you around in circles. And by the way, even if you get off of the carousel and get a little bit of Jesus and then get back on the carousel, it's still going to go around in a circle. Listen, that is still as hopeless and empty, unsatisfying as it was before you knew it. Maybe, maybe even in, some, in, the, in the case of some people, even more discouraging. Because they, th they think somehow that's supposed to be the remedy. Um, and they find it more depressing now that even with Jesus, they're still just going around in circles. It doesn't matter which horse you sit on on that carousel. Or you can sit in the bench where the grown-ups sit, you know. <laughs> it's all going to the same place. Around and around and around. Because here's the profound truth we need to be reminded of. From time to time. Wherever you go, there you are. Now I want to write that one down in the leaflet of your Bible. Wherever you go, there you are. And wherever you are, your troubled and restless heart is with you. And that will remain true until we're brought to the place where we understand and recognize uh, what Augustine said was true of him, or that he discovered this truth in his own life. Augustine, or St. Augustine, as you may know him, he said this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our catechism, the Westminster Catechism, the first question says, what's the chief end of man? And the answer being the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Enjoy him. And so much of the story of, uh, of 
despair and that sort of thing, even in the lives of believers, is trying to find enjoyment outside of him or rest in our hearts apart from him. But as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You will have tribulation. One of the things, there is a carousel that seems to promise a ride with no tribulation, and there is no such ride, beloved. By the way, in this world you will have tribulation, but in me, Jesus said, you may have peace. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those outside of Christ, those who are not believers, are at enmity with God. And Jesus, through faith in him, makes peace between us and God even when life holds uh, unrest of its own kinds. If we want lasting peace and power in our lives, we've got to flee to Jesus to find it. We will not not find it on the carousel. And maybe the response that some of us need to make today is just to surrender afresh to him so our restless hearts can find rest in him. If you're here today and you've never professed faith in Jesus, you've never made a decision to follow him, you've never believed in him, I would invite you to make today that day where you can find peace you've never known about a a, a restlessness that you'll never find anything else to deal with. And that even as life has its tribulations and its trials, that he is a source of peace in them when there seems there's no way out of them. And maybe there are others. You've been a believer for a long time, but you've gotten right back on the carousel. You know know where the ride leads, Somehow that horsey just looked attractive again. And there there you are, riding on its back again, expecting it to take you somewhere it's not going to take you. And you just need to make a fresh commitment to the Lord to say, uh, God, I'm sorry. I let go of the things I've latched onto, expecting to find satisfaction that I know I can't find. Would you rend them out of my hands if they have to be rent out of my hands? Because, Lord, I know that the only great and lasting joy I'll find in you yourself. And whatever the response is you need to make today, um, I encourage you to make it because our heart is restless until it finds rest in him. Would you pray with me? Well, Lord, we just come to you this morning 
with gratitude that the invitation has even been extended. Lord, we, we stand with the multitude knowing we need a deliverer. But there's a part of us that stands with the multitude also wanting a deliverer who will deliver us on our own terms or in the way that we think we should be delivered. Lord, we were reminded as we opened the book of Acts that 50 days later at Pentecost, there were not multitudes there. There were 120 people who were still believers. Because whatever it was the crowd was shouting about or shouting for, they did not think they had found in Jesus. And Lord, I, I know if the truth were told about our own hearts, we could give our own testimony of expecting from Jesus something other than what it was he came offering. A magic genie sort of deliverer rather than the Lord of the universe. And so God, would you just arrest our hearts, bring us to our knees before you, crying out and saying, Lord, we know that the only rest we can find is in you and the only peace we want is that fount of it that you supply without end. Lord, would you pour that out uh, onto us today and into us. Lord, I pray that you would lead individuals here um, just to discover in their own heart. Would you show us in our own hearts, Lord, what it is that needs to be laid before you by way of confession and a fresh surrender to say, here it is and here am I. Lord, have all of me and draw me to an employ, a place where I find all of my joy and peace, enjoyment and satisfaction in you alone. Would you take us to that place, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.